Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day, and welcome to episode 192 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Mike Dolbeck and I are glad you've joined us today. Today, we're pleased to host Andrew Oban, Managing Director, Bank of America Securities Equity Research, covering the multi-industry sector and industrial software sectors including Aspen, Carrier, Dover, Eaton, Emerson, GE, Johnson Controls, Rockwell Automation, and Train, to name just a few. Before joining Merrill Lynch in 2002, Andrew worked at Lehman Brothers, covering the aerospace and defense sector. Andrew has consistently been ranked among the top analysts, recognized for the quality of his stock pickings and estimates by Forbes, Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Andrew, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here, and thank you for including me. And we're quite pleased to have you as well. So, you know, we call this the Digital Thread Podcast, and really as a buildup to getting into the core of our discussions, we really want to understand your digital thread. In other words, the one or more thematic threads that define your digital industry journey. Sure. So I've covered industrials for, uh, gosh, uh, 25 years at this point. It's very interesting, but the industrial sector where we really started to see the emergence of digital and software really moving the needle was first ag and construction, right? So companies like John Deere with smart farming 15 years ago, and also Caterpillar and uh, Kamatsu. Of course, for larger diversified multi-industrial company, Predix, almost a decade ago now, right? Right concept, timing, execution. But that really put, I think, industrial IoT, Internet of Things, whatever you want to call it, on people's radar. And what's been happening is that service is really key to companies within my coverage. And software is becoming increasingly important. And I think the issue that my companies are facing in implementing sort of these digital initiatives, it's really what's fascinating to watch. It's as much cultural as technical. And that's where a lot of discussion is. And, you know, within the sector, the next step, you sort of had Rockwell PTC tie up. You started seeing these big, large, diversified industrial companies really paying a lot more attention to software. You had Fortif starting to buy up industrial software companies. And so I raised my hand internally and asked for more coverage and was given more coverage of industrial software companies. So in addition to covering uh, these large multi-industrial companies that are increasingly focusing on software, I'm also covering pure industrial software companies as well. So that has been my journey, I think, over the past couple of decades. What a great place to be. You know, we're big fans of this intersection of OT and IT, and it's the companies you've mentioned, and especially some of the pioneers like Caterpillar particularly, we really do think really kind of set the level, if you will, for some of the other industries that are out there. Maybe we'll just do a quick level set for the audience in terms of your area of coverage. So we mentioned multi-industry sector and the industrial software sector. What are your key themes and some of your key companies in this? Yeah, so 
just multi-industrials, really, these are the companies that used to be known as conglomerates, right? Also, these are large U.S. industrial companies that have survived the onslaught of the Japanese competition back in the 80s. So a lot of focus on automation. And the history is back in the 60s, there was a new ways of running companies and allocating capital that was more efficient. These companies proved to be more defensive in the face of what was happening in the 1970s, geopolitical uncertainty and inflation. And these companies really excelled in the period of low industrial growth in the U.S. over the past 20 years, really focused on operational excellence in the period of slow growth. What we're seeing, uh, big ones breaking up. So big ones would be Danaher, 3M, General Electric. But what's interesting, there is a new generation coming up, companies like Amatech, Fortif, Dover, so it's a very dynamic sector with a lot of things happening. The companies I cover tend to have diverse portfolios, uh, probably more focused than in the past, but these companies tend to be good at operations and capital allocation. And over the past decade, they've been paying a lot more attention to software and services. Thanks, Andrew. This is Mike Dolbeck here. Very nice to meet you. And I'm a veteran of, here, uh, of the GE Predicts efforts. So thanks for mentioning that. Given the broad breadth of what you follow, what are some of the key macro factors that you see as driving performance amongst the companies that you cover? Sure. So investors that follow my companies really focus on two metrics. First is organic growth and second, return on tangible assets. So for folks who know a little bit about finance, this is a metric that excludes the impact of M&A and really focuses on cash flow. So it's really organic growth and free cash flow, right? So the big macro factor that investors will focus, I cover industrial focused sector. So it's U.S. CapEx, capacity additions. U.S. tends to be the most profitable market. Used to be China was a huge focus. China has slowed. And of course, global industrial production. But right now, I would say it's U.S., China, global industrial production and capacity additions. M&A, big focus, two big themes for companies in my coverage, making portfolio more profitable and less cyclical. So they tend to look for better quality industrials as acquisition targets with larger service components, but also, and we've done some work in it, surprisingly large focus on software and healthcare, in some cases to a point where they become something of a healthcare company or life science company, like in case of Danaher, right? At the same time, you also have a parallel trend of larger companies getting smaller that I talked about. We think that for the next decade, the big theme is fracturing of the global supply chains, and which obviously means you have to replicate supply chain in multiple areas. And as a result, you're getting reshoring. And of course, in the US, if you look at the numbers, the really big driver of reshoring is semiconductors with a lot of secondary and tertiary implications across the broader value chain. Great, thanks. You mentioned reshoring, which we believe is actually a quite important factor. Also, at least in Europe, referred to many times as resilience. And especially, of course, since the pandemic, to what extent do you see this creating a renaissance for manufacturing in the U.S.? So I am probably one of the most bullish people when it comes to reshoring and thinking about it. And I think to think about it, you really need to take a step back. And strategically, where it started, U.S. was is facing an issue 
of key electronic components only available in China. So it's not just you can't make these parts in the U.S., but you can no longer source them from uh, allies. And I think a big eye-opener for me was sort of visiting uh, Hanhai Foxconn up in Wisconsin, and they sort of described their thinking that over the long term, uh, the U.S. government will be unwilling to source components from China, and the view is that the U.S. government is big enough customer and right, U.S. government is not particularly sensitive to price, where it would make sense over time to think about moving large chunks of supply chain to North America to service U.S. government as a customer, right? And it actually has a pretty profound implications because I don't think people appreciate that tech has been the single biggest driver of hallowing out of the U.S. manufacturing over the past 20 years. And let me give you some numbers. So back in 2000, the value of U.S. durable goods manufacturing sector was $1.7 trillion a year, of which $400 billion was tech. Today, we are at $1.6 trillion, with tech only $200 billion. And these are constant numbers, right? So what effectively happened is that over the past 20 years, Incremental semi-capacity has gone outside of the U.S., and of course, Apple is the other big factor. If you look at the rest of U.S. manufacturing, I mean, it hasn't sort of done anything exciting, but the reality is the rest of the U.S. manufacturing base has been fairly steady with aerospace and chemicals being a big area of growth, right? So that's just the framework here. And if you look at capacity additions, right, in the late 90s, that's really tech was the last big driver of U.S. capacity additions as far as manufacturing goes. So to put it in perspective, the total value of U.S. manufacturing capex is $500 billion, right? And this number includes everything. Within that, plant and equipment is about $200 billion of that, right? With pure equipment, somewhere over $100 billion. Software, industrial software, is another $140 billion. Interestingly enough, U.S. manufacturing companies today spend more on software than they do on equipment. So think about that this $500 billion number, $200 billion of plant and equipment, which is really the sandbox where the companies that I cover really play, right? So the current list of announced semi-plants is starting to get close to $100 billion right, the value. On top of it, you should be thinking that a lot of the semi-plants will drag part of their supply chain with them. We went to a big industrial show, IMTS, a couple of weeks ago in Chicago, definitely starting to hear from, for example, Asian linear motion manufacturers, right? Something that you need to make semiconductor equipment, starting to bring some of the sub-assemblies to the U.S. and thinking about adding more capacity, right, because it's a lot easier to serve this CapEx boom in the U.S. So it's, it's the reverse of the process that has been playing, taking place for the past 20 years. You should also recognize that these semiconductor fabs are 80% CapEx, right? So if you have 200 billion base of plant and equipment, right? So appreciate this 100 billion really means 80 billion of CapEx, right? On top of this, right, on top of the semiconductor boom, which is really driven by national security concerns, right? It's really U.S. military mm -hmm. is in the driver's seat, which sort of started talking about it, right? 
On top of it, you have less outsourcing and there is data. You can see that the amount of intermediate goods exported to the U.S. has been flat since Trump tariffs. So you actually did see that Trump administration policy actually have made a difference in terms of outsourcing. It didn't cost people to bring more stuff to the U.S., but it did pause uh, outsourcing or it's been relatively flat. And on top of this, you have stimulus, right? And so you can easily see the rate of U.S. manufacturing capex effectively doubling or tripling versus where we have been over the past, I would say, 20 years. So I think that we are poised to see U.S. manufacturing capex grow probably at the fastest rate in two, three decades. And I think what's going to be very different is we see U.S. industrial market as being the fastest growth industrial market in the world, which is very, very different from anything we have seen in the past couple of decades. Yeah, you're right. That's eye-opening. You know, as we're going from the large macro level down further and further and focusing on particular issues and and segments, I, I just wanted to let you know that we've enjoyed your past digital machinations series and your top five trends that you speak about within that series. What are the top five trends that you're tracking now in that digital machination? Yeah, good question. Thank you. So I'm going to list them and then I'm going to go into a little bit more detail. So I think it's perhaps a bit of a longer list, but first I would say it's accelerated automation and digitization in response to labor shortages. Second, companies within my coverage are definitely more proactive on software in terms of M&A. The next one is you have Microsoft and AWS building out their software stacks and sort of offering alternative to these existing systems. I would say the fourth one is that the industry is starting to embrace cloud SaaS. And I think the potential here, you know, I think it sort of ties into Microsoft and AWS, but this idea is that perhaps you finally could achieve this goal of scalability. I think it really remains to be seen how successful it will be, but at least there is this golden promise. And finally, we think that oil and gas industry is a very exciting place and could materially accelerate its software spend in response to things like energy transition and more careful approach to capital spending. Let me go into more detail. So the first one is accelerate automation and digitization in response to labor shortages. I mean, what's happening is that you do have demographics in the U.S., right, where just more experienced labor force is retiring and the younger generation just doesn't want to work in the factories. And part of it, I think, is, A, I think it's skill shortage, but I would also say it's the fact that for the past 40 years, U.S. industrial employment has been on a downward slope. So if you're thinking about sort of a lifelong career, manufacturing might not be at the top of your list. And companies are quite desperate now. But the reality is, I think people have sort of recognized that it's just going to be really, really hard to replace the labor force that's exiting. And on top of it, by the way, things that are coming back to the U.S. are going to be in many cases high value add with sort of natural place for a lot of automation. But we are 
seeing, right? I mean, you should think about automation as a multiple of industrial production, industrial capex. So as industrial production, industrial capex are accelerating, and as we have this sort of demographic issue in US labor force, that is just forcing companies to adopt faster and faster and faster. A friend of mine ran a printing company and a label company, and he basically said, we spend on automation like drunken sailors. We cannot convince people to come and work in our factories. On top of it, of course, if you look at the structure just beyond that, the simple relationship that we have observed between labor costs and automation is that any spike in labor costs tend to follow by automation spending two years after. So it's just multiple things coming together. So I think that market is very, very hot. Second, companies being more proactive on software and M&A, and you're just starting to see it, right? I mean, Predix was the first one. Didn't quite work, but I think it was the right idea, right? Fortif followed by trying to sort of buy these more traditional industrial software companies, right? More niche in sort of discrete verticals, not really related to manufacturing. But then you had the tie-up between Rockwell and PTC. We think that the industrial logic for the tie-up, right, has changed over time. But I think a lot of people have been paying attention. And then, of course, you have Emerson Aspen. And if we were to guess, you're going to see a lot more of this to come. What you have to understand, and I'll just talk a little bit about sort of more geeky aspect of the finance, software assets look incredibly good inside industrial companies. And the reason is I described industrial investors focused on organic growth. Industrial software companies tend to grow faster than industrial manufacturing. And industrial investors also focus on return on capital, excluding amortization. The reason this is important is because just in terms of pure return on invested capital, software companies are very capital light. So as you add software revenue, right, all of a sudden makes underlying industrial assets look a lot better, right? It's just you bring up the average quite materially, and that's what drives the multiple of industrial names. So it is sort of tends to be multiple enhancing. On top of it, I would also add, because industrial software companies tend to grow quite a bit faster than industrial companies, right? On a cash flow basis, there's a big debate in my space, how expensive is industrial software? It's actually not as expensive as you would think, given the fact that they compound a lot faster. Obviously, you know, with the interest rates going up, the math changes a little bit, but just also appreciate the way industrial investors look at the world. Industrial software tends to look good. So all of this uh, is becoming a big focus for companies within my coverage. Uh, the third one, Microsoft and AWS building out their software stacks. Uh, I think that train has left the station. Uh, we shall see how disruptive uh, these two will be. Microsoft clearly works more with IT department because they're so dominant on the IT side, right? AWS, as far as we can tell, uh, is more active going to folks on the factory floor. The message seemingly, right, uh, we understand what it is you're doing, but they're bringing a lot of expertise. Uh, they're bringing a lot of money. They've really upgraded the talent and they're building out their software stacks, right? 
which are different. And it's not these isolated ecosystems that you had on the factory floor. And they're starting to be disruptive. We shall see how disruptive this will be. But that's something very material. And we do expect, just given the numbers that the industry is talking, right, just generally, there should be a high area of growth. And this segues into the whole SaaS topic. Historically, industrial companies have been very, very conservative, right, really favored on-prem software. Right now, I would guess SaaS is probably over 10%, but the view is that it's going to get over 50 fairly fast. And if you just do basic back-of-the-envelope math, what it tells you is that legacy on-prem software is going to grow maybe low single digits at best, right, versus high single digits in the past. And of course, SaaS is going to be the big area of growth, and SaaS, is, depending on assumption, is going to grow 20 30%. So a lot of focus from both legacy players on sort of trying to move to SaaS, but obviously it's a big opportunity that Microsoft and AWS see in the space, right? Because all of a sudden the space, if you think about it, we estimate value of industrial software probably 60 billion a year, depending on a definition, right? So right now it's 10% SaaS, so it's only 6 billion. You guys know what the valuations are like, right? But if it continues to grow and if it's SaaS becomes half of it, right? All of a sudden you have 50 billion SaaS TAM, right? Depending on the multiple you put, all of a sudden it's half a trillion or more in market value available for grabs. So a lot more people are interested, right? Because all of a sudden you can scale and you can make a lot of money. Don't underestimate that as a key driver. And finally, I would sort of focus on oil and gas industry as a big white space. And what you should realize is that historically, oil and gas industry historically has been all about growth. And it's actually very, very inefficient industry. If you look, the number of man hours that it takes to get a barrel of oil out of the ground today versus 30 years ago has not changed, right? Which is staggering. You don't realize it, right? Because the industry had a lot of capital to throw at growth. Now, between energy transition and more careful approach to capital spending, we just see a lot more focus on sweating the assets harder, which necessitates more spending on digital and more spending on software. And just to put it in perspective, so we said that manufacturing industry spends $200 billion a year on property and equipment and $140 billion on software. We think, I think, I believe the comparable numbers for oil and gas industry is 120 billion on property and equipment and 9 billion on software. So, oil and gas industry absolutely spends a fraction of what manufacturing spends and what happened in manufacturing. The reason manufacturing ended up spending so much on software is because of this past 20 years, we had no growth in terms of capex and capacity expansion. And if you're running a factory, the only thing you were allowed to spend money on was efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. So our view, if you're going to start gating growth in oil and gas industry, they have to focus on making things more efficient. And as a result, we think structurally, the software spending for the industry can double, triple, quadruple, frankly, on the same overall level of CapEx. Wow, I'm smiling. That's a very exciting perspective. I have a couple of follow-up questions if we have time before we move on to the next one. There was a very rich answer that you just gave us that you've covered quite a few. You answered it explicitly, but it generates some thoughts in my mind. One is if I go way back to the way in which manufacturers are deploying software today, 
do you see historically it's been about efficiency and not so much direct contact with the people that work in factories and one trend we're seeing is the now the investment in software to augment frontline workers or later in the stages to augment plant manager decision makers so software that real people use as opposed to efficiency that drives machines in in some better way do you see that at all yeah, absolutely. And this goes back to what I said about labor shortage. Folks are retiring mm -hmm. and folks are retiring, have all the expertise. And as you're trying to bring in more people, the U.S. does not have a history of apprenticeship. And you have to get, you know, how do you place a 60-year-old factory nice. or mm -hmm. worker who knows this machine inside and out with a 20-year-old? right, who did not grow up working on cars with his dad, right? Yeah. Because you don't do that anymore because the cars are all electronic these days, <laughs> right? And no, we absolutely see things like augmented reality and trying to automate processes. It's a big, big deal. Okay, thank you. I've heard that workers retiring problem jokingly described as the gray 2K problem. Yeah, um, we met with a robotics manufacturer and welding is one of the most People don't appreciate welders make a lot of money mm -hmm. and having good welders is very, very important. Actually, historically, has been one of the U.S. competitive advantages. And I met with a robotics manufacturer and they said, look, the average age of the welder in the U.S. is 52. Next year is going to be 53. And historically, you would not necessarily replace welder with a robot. And all of a sudden, there is demand for these welding robots, uh, small welding robots. Clearly, right. you would do it for large. It's just because these folks are retiring and it's a very, very high value add job. And given how much these folks get paid and how important it is, it makes sense to automate. And to any teenager who's listening to this, who wants to go work on a factory, welding is a very, very good living and ain't going away anytime fast. So I see. One more follow-up, if it's possible. You described the attractiveness of software to CapEx-intensive industrials. I have been on the other side where the challenge is that SaaS-based software companies would love to have, generally expect a higher multiple than industrials are comfortable paying. And so there's this natural conflict. I don't think an industrial is going to do the multiple that Adobe paid for Figma anytime soon. So how do you see that natural tension going forward? So look, we have a great example in my coverage, Fortif and Bontier, they really believe, right? Because they do look on things in terms of cash flow. And as I said, if you look at terminal value, actually, and we've done this exercise, and as I said, interest rates do matter. But what's very interesting is that industrial software companies, and within my coverage, they were trading, let's call it 25 times EBITDA versus regular industrial companies trading at 15 times EBITDA. If you actually try to look what the implied terminal growth value based on a fairly conservative cash flow assumptions, what's very interesting is that industrial software companies trade at par or cheaper than these multi-industrial companies. So what's very interesting I think it really depends on how you look at it. I do think a part of the issue, it's not just internal, it's also external because believe it or not, part of your issue is that industrial investors are not used at looking at software companies. And they say that they really like free cash flow, but what they don't understand that a mature SaaS company 
is just a cash printing machine. It's very interesting. I am, at this point, I think the only industrial analyst who has broad coverage of industrial software. So to me, it was absolutely revelatory just how much cash these companies can generate. And once you appreciate it, buying industrial software companies becomes no-brainer. But as I talk to more established sort of industrial analysts on the buy side, right, that's exactly the issue you're running into. They go, well, you know, these things are trading at 30 times EBITDA or 15 times sales. Why in the world would I pay up for it? And the answer is, well, because in three years, you're going to be getting a ton of free cash flow, right? But I think the issue is that investment community is very siloed. And by and large, industrial investors are not familiar with industrial software companies. And I think the issue for industrial companies, right, is that how do you sell this deal to industrial investors? What we have observed, though, is that if you look at announced software deals across the board within my coverage, what's interesting, by and large, though, industrial names don't go down on software acquisition announcements, which is very interesting, right? So if investors as negative as I'm telling you, so maybe investors are starting to get it. I think what we have seen is that multi-industrial companies have been careful, right? They're not going for a slam dunk large acquisition. They're really trying to do sort of these bolt-on deals, but deals are getting larger, right? You have Emerson Aspen, You have, obviously, Schneider or Viva. But if you look at the company that's buying, right, when they announce these deals, the stock is not going up, but it actually, in many cases, is sort of is holding up better than you would expect, getting this, quote unquote, perceived negativity on software. So maybe I'm contradicting myself, but at the same time, right, if you look at their reaction to announce deals, maybe industrial investors do appreciate that there is something there to cash flow generation at these companies. To me, the biggest issue is not the math, it's the culture. It's how do you operate a software company inside an industrial conglomerate? That to me is a bigger issue than just pure math. Thank you. That's a perfect segue to one of the questions that I wanted to ask you next, which is a number of industrials, and you just mentioned one of them, have approached their software stacks as uh, separate entities, Emerson and Aspen, most recently Schneider Electric and Aviva. Is there an ideal model of merging a hardware and software business in the industrial space, or at least a formerly almost exclusively hardware culture learning how to collaborate with and manage a software business as well as its own CapEx hardware business? So I think the answer is we don't know yet, right? I think, and that's why I think Emerson and Aspen, the structure of the deal as we see it is to try to incubate a software company outside of large industrial conglomerate. But then, of course, Schneider Aviva sort of shows you where this could go that ultimately Uh, given the importance of software to your service business, which is really bread and butter of these companies, right? And the issue is, the reason they're doing all these deals is that they are seeing their service-oriented business models being disrupted, right? And it's either they will disrupt it themselves or somebody else will do remote monitoring, right? Sort of preventative maintenance. This is where all these companies really make money. 
So I think you really have seen multiple examples, right? I think you've seen Emerson, Aspen, and prior to takeout, Aviva Schneider. Depends on how you structure these deals, right? Structure of these deals is very important as to whether or not they're going to work, how much control the parent has over sort of uh, the software, or you want to call it acquisition subsidiary. You have seen clearly Predix is an example of something that didn't work, but then you have Honeywell, right, trying to replicate it organically, internally, right, with they've had some bumps in the road. And then you have uh, Rockwell trying to do something else, right? I mean, you sort of have Rockwell far behind the likes of Siemens, ABB, Schneider in terms of their software capability. So what they're doing is that they're trying to leapfrog them with a sort of SaaS-based MAS offering, right? So they are betting that legacy large industrial software players, some of them will have trouble transitioning over time. And by being more nimble, they'll be able to leapfrog them. And right initially, they tried this sort of cross-owning uh, a stake in PTC. Now, the focus seemingly shifted to more internal focus, right, M&A driven. So I think different folks are trying different things. For us, we think this Emerson Aspen model really balances, at least in the near to medium term, balances sort of risk reward. And to me, as I said, what I have observed over the past decade is that the biggest issue is not the valuation of these companies, right? Because the math really works. The biggest issue, how do you make sure that you can retain the right kind of software engineers and that they don't quit? And to us, this issue is at the heart of sort of Emerson Aspen deal, right? Is that software engineers like to work for software companies. And then, of course, there's this inherent IT, OT, software engineer conflict in all these companies as well. But I'll just leave it at that. Well said, actually. So let me ask, I know that you cover public companies for the most part, but what are some of the industry-focused venture investors and or startups that you're watching as well? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I'm in slightly different boat because I cover fairly large companies, right? So I think I am focused on more mature companies. And because of cash flow generation, you have seen a lot of these companies being part of private equity. So we're definitely paying attention to a GenStar, Francisco Partners, folks like Mountain Capital doing, right? Because you have seen a lot of deals in my sector come out of private equity. And it's just a function that this goes back to this cultural issue, right? And also the ability of these companies to consistently pay high multiples. So in a way, they've outsourced creation of these companies to private equity at a price, of course, right? And then you pay premium. And then we pay attention to you. And we know a lot of your guests, right? John Sobel from Site Machine, Andy Bain from Element, Natan Linder from Tulip. I'm a huge fan of Joe Perino. I follow what he used to say at LNS. So actually, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. And I definitely get a lot of my ideas there. And then, as I said, I also spend quite a bit of time talking to folks inside industrial companies, trying to figure out what it is they are doing. But as I said, appreciate, I cover large companies that are fairly conservative. So I tend to sort of try to figure out, okay, what are the bigger names that can move the needle? So that's what I do. And of course, you know, we go to a lot of industry shows and we spend a lot of time at AWS and Azure booth and we try to see 
who are the new partners that they're presenting to the world. And we're trying to sort of establish relationship with these folks and talk to them and learn from them. Great. Great. Let's change gears, Andrew. In closing, where do you find your personal inspiration? I really am lucky to have a job that I like and work with people that I like. So that's why I've sort of stuck around for as long as I have. Beyond that, I try to stay focused. I have a wife. I have two young kids. I'm lucky to have sort of smart friends and we sort of have dialogue with them. And me and my wife are active in local Jewish communities. So, you know, just trying to focus on the basics and try to sort of stay grounded and boring in my personal life. But as I said, I'm also lucky to do something that I like. Well answered. And and I think Mike and I would agree with our roles in uh, professional and personal lives as well. It's nice to see that mesh together. Andrew, thank you for sharing this time and insights with us today. No, thanks so much. As I said, I'm a huge fan and I'm honored to sort of be included on your list of speakers. As I said, because I've learned from a lot of your speakers and I admire a lot of them. So thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for the nice plug. And I think you make a great addition to our digital thread thought leaders. So this has been Andrew Oben, Managing Director, Bank of America Securities Equity Research. Thank you for listening. And please join us for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archive versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.